Hello and welcome to the Overseas Vietnamese Podcast. This is the show for the global Vietnamese community, all about Vietnamese success stories and cultural identity. We feature interesting personalities from all over the world and have them tell us about their life stories, perspectives and challenges. My name is Quang and I'm the founder of Overseas Vietnamese, the global community of Vietnamese professionals. To learn more, visit us on OverseasVietnamese.com. Hi there, it's your co-host Mai, and I'm excited to introduce you to Tiffany Pham, our guest in today's podcast episode. Tiffany is a Yale and Harvard Business School alum who is the CEO and founder of Mogul, a technology platform for women and a recruitment and advancement partner for diverse talent in over 480 Fortune 1000 companies, such as Amazon, IBM, Nike, McKinsey, and startups as well as SMEs. Mogul is a social enterprise that invests their revenue into providing free resources for the economic advancement of individuals in need globally, through international partners such as the UN, actually. Tiffany was named Forbes 30 Under 30 in media back in 2014, among many other accolades across the years, such as Entrepreneur Magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women or Inc. Magazine's Top 100 Female Founders. She was born in France, but moved to Texas when she was 10. So without further ado, hi Tiffany, thank you so much for your time today. We are thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much, Mai. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here with you both, Kong and Mai, and excited to be able to share my story and to hopefully share some inspiration with the audience today. Great. Well, I think the first question that we'd like to ask our guests is one that asks you to look back at your upbringing. What was it like to grow up in the U.S. as a Vietnamese? And also, I know that you were in France before that. So how was the move from France to Texas? It was definitely a very interesting time. When I grew up, as you said, I grew up in Paris, France initially. And there I had a wonderful childhood. I recall skipping along castles in the suburbs, you know, eating crepes in the streets. It was beautiful time in Paris. But my parents always worried about me since I was a young girl, Asian girl living in France that I wouldn't have necessarily the same opportunities as those around me. So they would watch black and white movies from America as I was growing up in France and eventually fell in love with the country and thought maybe there one day I could have more opportunities. So eventually when I was 10 years old, we moved from ultimately Paris, France to Plano, Texas. And that's where I ended up. It was a big shock, I guess I can see from your smiles. It was definitely you know, a very different environment, but I cherish it so much because I think it was the first of what became many moves throughout my life that enabled me to become a very resilient person, uh, very accepting of so many different perspectives and cultures, and of course, brought me to where Mogul is today. And so what happened then when I was 10 was that I would watch TV shows like Friends and I Love Lucy, and I could see for myself then how powerful the world around us media could be for learning and education, since that's how I ended up learning English at age 10. And then when I was 14 years old, that's when my entire life changed. Because that was the year when I was 14 that my biggest role model in life, my grandmother, passed away. The one woman I had looked up to my whole entire childhood, my whole life this incredible woman who had been such an amazing, incredible, successful entrepreneur herself, running businesses across Asia and, and such an amazing, generous, caring, warm woman um, that 
on a professional, personal level, I aspired in every single way to be like her. And so the day that she passed away, I made a promise to her that I would spend the rest of my life working towards the same goal and mission that she had had. No matter what, no matter how challenging, I would spend the rest of my life working to follow in her footsteps, always working to provide others in need with opportunities just as she had with her businesses and more. And so that day, since I was 14, that's all I've ever been working towards. And so then I ended up by age 16, not knowing where I should go to college, uh, but I dreamt of far away, you know, had grown up in Texas, as you pointed out, and, and I just knew of one world at that time now uh, for those years after France. And so I longed to explore the world further and I didn't know how that was going to happen because I didn't have the money to necessarily go to college. And I didn't have the money either to go visit colleges. But that's when I happened to watch a TV show called Gamora Girls. And ultimately that gave me the one little sneak peek of what the world looked like beyond Texas. This incredible studious girl that was just like me, Rory Gilmore, super smart, shy, quiet, just like me. She uh, seemed to want to always put her nose in the books and just want to stay in and, and hang out with her family. And that's how I was like, so when she went off to Yale on the show, I thought maybe that's where I could go. And she not only that, but she not only went off to Yale, but also ran the school newspaper there, which is one of the businesses that my grandmother had run. So when I saw that, I thought to myself, maybe that's what I could do to be like my grandmother. So I ended up then thinking maybe I should write a letter to Yale, ask them for a chance, let them know that this is what I aspired to, to be like my grandmother, to follow in her footsteps. And then uh, after a couple of months of silence from them, I ended up getting back a letter that they were going to let me in on a full scholarship. And so that became my very first time of tech, out of Texas. And the first time I ever saw what a college looked like, my first day of Yale. Incredible story. Thanks for sharing openly. I see that you're a great storyteller and I can very vividly imagine you moving to Texas writing a year later and so on. And you mentioned your grandmother who must have been a great lady. So I would like to know a bit more about your family environment back then. Did you move to the US with a big family? Were you all together? Do you have siblings? Can you share a bit more about that? I did have siblings growing up uh, from France to Texas. Definitely had a, a wonderful younger brother, older sister that I still cherish so much. And we are so supportive of one another. And, and uh, when I moved to Texas, we were actually isolated as a family because our family had been dispersed all throughout the world, France, Germany, many that were in the America region were actually, um, those who were in the United States were in California, mostly with a small handful in Texas. And so basically we did have a very large family. We do have a very large family, but all across the world, and of the one place we selected to ultimately settle down due to my parents' employment, there were just a small handful of relatives nearby. So ultimately growing up, um, I looked far and away towards my family globally, you know, for inspiration, aspiration, but, but nearby was fairly isolated. So that is why even furthermore, I wanted to explore the world to see something different. And so at that time, Yale represented that for me, that kind of dream world, you know, one that I'd never been a part of and hoped to kind of understand what the world could be like. 
and you went on to explore the world. Let's continue talking about your journey. Tell us about your time at Yale and beyond. Yeah, so basically what happened when I was at Yale was that I was also still very introverted, very shy. And so I ended up being, again, such a studious person that I would go from my bedroom to the classroom, to the bedroom, to the classroom, just back and forth and never made a single dent in the campus, like never talked to really anybody, never made a single bit of impact on anyone really because I was just so timid. And when I went back to Plano, Texas, the summer after my freshman year, I looked back on that first year and I thought, wow, you know, I was nothing like my grandmother that first year. I made no impact whatsoever. I looked back full of regret at that first year. There was so much more I could have done. I knew it in myself. I knew I could have done so much more. So I promised myself never again would I let a single moment of my life ever go by again with regret. I never again would let a single moment go by whereby I didn't raise my hand, put my foot forward for an opportunity, grasp that opportunity. I would always try to from now on. So I promised myself that. And when I came back to campus my sophomore year, I received an email from the Asian American Students Alliance. And I love that, that it was from the Asian American Students Alliance because it always just shows how our community in the end, it makes a difference to each one of us in each of our lives. It was the thing that kickstarted the rest of my life thereafter, that community tie to our Asian backgrounds. Um, so what happened was that the Asian American Students Alliance sent me a note to all Asians, I'm sure all Asian students on campus asking for a webmaster. And I didn't know what that was, but remember I had just made a promise to myself that I would go after any opportunity that came by, no regrets, right? So ended up then writing back that I'd love to be the webmaster. And I must've been the only one that applied because I got the role. And then as a result of being the webmaster was invited to join board meetings at the Asian American Students Alliance house. So ended up joining their board meeting only to find that at the first board meeting, everyone was livid. Everyone was so upset because the school newspaper that morning had printed a racist cartoon against Asians. And everyone was passing around this newspaper, planning to protest. We were going to create a rally around the school newspaper building. And when I got the newspaper myself and scanned the cartoon, I turned it to the back page, the newspaper, and saw there was an advertisement there. They are looking for a business person to join the team. And then I thought to myself, you know, perhaps one of the ways in which I could help this organization was from the inside out. Perhaps if I joined them from the inside out, I could make a bigger difference than even perhaps a protest could. So I ended up then writing a letter to the publisher and got back an email saying, let's meet tomorrow uh, with the rest of the business team, showed up at the business meeting the next day, only to find that it was just me and her at the meeting. In fact, everyone had fled the situation at the newspaper because it, as it turned out, the newspaper was nearly bankrupt and everyone had gone and only one person was left, the publisher and myself. So as a result, in this very dire situation, I did what I could, which was to suggest what was my worst nightmare at the time as an introvert and roll up our sleeves, let's go selling door to door to door ourselves. And so did that, was such a powerful experience as you can imagine, again, especially for someone like me who was an introvert and liked to stay indoors, having to push myself to go meet up with business owners, local stores, local restaurants, and ask people if they could please buy something from the newspaper, buy advertisements, anything. 
And I learned door-to-door sales that way and pushed myself. And we went from bankruptcy to record profitability thereafter within six months, pushing myself, pushing ourselves. And that became my first entrepreneurial experience. Something I look back on and still believe to this day became the experience that formed me in my DNA and where I am today. And as a result of that made me realize that I could be like my grandmother if I really tried, I really could be. And so I, I cherish that memory so much. Wow, amazing. It's incredible to know that you're an introvert because from seeing you today, a lot of people never would have guessed. But just to rewind a bit, back to the moment when you might have reconnected more with your Asian identity on campus, when was it that you also connected more with your Vietnamese identity? Connecting back with my Vietnamese identity was always something I naturally did when I thought of my grandmother because my grandmother was such an incredible community figure in Vietnam that whenever I I loved my grandmother and I thought of her, I loved Vietnam and I thought of Vietnam. And so um, that is what is so special about my bond with my family, my grandmother. It's the bond with the country, with the people, to the culture, myself. So yeah, anytime I think of her, I think of Vietnam. And so the, the more that passion grew for following in her footsteps, the more I grew passionate too about continuing to stay strong to my roots, continuing to stay tied to my roots and being able to fortify that subsequently with trips back to Vietnam and having my life story published in Vietnam as well as recently actually in, as a book um, has been a really powerful experience to know that this story is being shared amongst a lot of uh, incredible Vietnamese leaders and and people there too. But so what happened though was that nonetheless around this time frame around Yale I was such a melange of Asian and of course having grown up in France having ties to the French culture as well and American culture too because we were surrounded by mostly American student population. So I was such a melange at this time with this growing root you know towards my Vietnamese origin and that continuing to sprout. And you'll see that throughout the rest of my life, that that love and passion for my culture, Asian culture, Vietnamese culture, continuing to propagate itself throughout my identity and more. And so what happened was though, around this time, I then didn't know what next step to take. And that's when I happened to watch another movie. And this one was called Legally Blonde. And in it, Elle Woods was again, kind of like me in that she, most importantly, most significantly, didn't believe in herself initially. And then she went off to graduate school where it was a transformative experience for her and then she killed it. So then when I saw that, I thought to myself, maybe that's what I could do as my next step to be like my grandmother. So I ended up writing a letter to Harvard Business School. And that's when after a couple of months of silence, I got back a letter that they were going to let me in again on a scholarship. So I ended up there as one of their youngest students. And it was again, that very first year in which I had a difficult experience as an introvert, as a still rather timid person surrounded by mostly Caucasian males. I was very intimidated and felt out of place and barely raised my hand amongst a number of students that seemed to have so much more experience than me legitimately because I was one of the youngest students there. But now in hindsight, I realized I had just as good of insights as they did, but I didn't speak up nonetheless. So what happened was that that first year went by, 
And then I went back to Plano, found my center again. And I said to myself again, never again can I let a single moment of my life go by with such regret. I have to start to speak up. So I came back, started to raise my hand, force myself to speak up, which is important at Harvard Business School because your grade nearly entirely depends on how many times you speak up in class, not even any tests or projects, just participation really. And so ended up speaking up, doing well thereafter as a result. And then thereafter, ended up working for one of their alums. And uh, what's so special about that Harvard Business School experience, and the reason I love to share all the hardship I experienced there was because subsequently uh, within that class, I became uh, the first of that student population to be listed on Forbes 30 under 30. I became the first amongst that class of uh, students to also have my company written about by Harvard Business School as one of their latest case study subjects. So it's come full circle now to now actually be back at the school and helping to teach all those students that may feel themselves that they're imposters or have imposter syndrome. So I love the full circle moment um, that has happened now a decade later. But going back to where I was at that time, I ended up working for an alum, Ann Sarnoff, who actually was president of BBC at the time, just became the CEO of Warner Brothers and is actually now on the board of Mogul as well, which has been really exciting, my company. Um, and ultimately ended up working thereafter for one of the presidents of HBO, one of the presidents of CBS, where I became one of their youngest executives within the company and ended up overseeing TV stations, radio stations, websites, mobile properties from a strategy business development standpoint was contributing to a digital transformation within the organization. But at nights, I realized that to be like my grandmother and start companies, I needed to know more about the different facets of a company. I needed to know, of course, strategy and business development, which I had now formal training in within business school and beyond. But I also needed to know marketing and branding. I needed to know content creation and distribution. So I would take on side jobs at night. Looking back, I had so much energy. I have to admit, when I think back of all the things I did at that time, but I would write letters to all these different people who are doing very impressive things in the respective fields. And I would ask them if there was anything I could do to give to them, contribute to their efforts, anything that I could do to help them. Because my hope was that by doing that, especially if it was free work, they would say yes. And then I would get to learn from the most incredible people ever. And it worked. People would say yes. Yeah, let's get together. And as a result, I ended up having side hustles. Sometimes I get paid, sometimes I wouldn't, but it wouldn't be important to me. It wasn't about the money, it was about the learning. So I would work at CBS during the day, but at nights I took on, again, side jobs. And one of them was working with the vice mayor of Beijing and the government of Beijing, uh, their cultural assets office. We developed a venture together that could bridge the cultural gaps between US and China. And one of the names of the venture uh, was the Beijing International Screenwriting Competition, for example, and I became the global head of marketing for that venture. So I developed a number of incredible skill sets within marketing and international relations, obviously by collaborating with the government and government officials. And then the third job I took on at nights was producing feature films and documentaries, whether that was featuring Patricia Arquette or Gerard Butler or other Hollywood celebrities. I learned a lot about talent, casting, production, distribution, content creation, viral creation, so much about that world. As I became a producer behind a number of different social uh, feature films, documentaries, 
and ultimately, for example, became the producer behind the first North American feature film to ever feature a man with Down syndrome in the lead role. So as a result, ended up having all of these three jobs. And then one day, different magazines started to write about my three jobs. And that was a really interesting time because I was just keeping to myself when all of a sudden different friends that were written for different magazines were to ask if they could possibly write about my three jobs to their audience. And initially it was like small blogs, small magazines. Suddenly it became Forbes. And that's when everything changed. When Forbes had placed me into an article where they had talked about my three jobs and included my email address. And it was, I believe, one of the first ever 30 under 30 lists in which they had mentioned all this. And as a result of that publication, all of a sudden I got a landslide of emails from all around the world. People saying, they had read about my three jobs. How could they get the same jobs too? How could I help them in their world, in their society? They didn't think it was possible to get the same jobs, interviews, promotions. How could I help? And so I would write back to every single letter. Here's what you do, steps one, two, three. And they would tell me that my letter changed their life when they got it back. Because I hated bluffy advice, I always wanted to give tactical, strategic advice and they would implement it and they would tell me they got the interview promotion opportunity they never thought would be possible. And that's what gave me the idea for Mogul. And so uh, that's you know the story behind how I first got the idea and I'm excited to be able to share how eventually I created it. I am amazed. You're really inspiring, Tiffany. How does your story go on then? How did you found your company, Mogul? So essentially, when I came up with the idea for Mogul, I realized that this was a wonderful idea that could help so many incredible women, minorities around the world to be like me, be more of themselves, reach their greatest potential. If we could all collectively share our goals, share aspirations, if we could share resources and information and opportunities amongst each other, we would be that much more likely to help one another grow to our greatest potential, unlock the world's greatest potential. I just felt that this could be a really wonderful idea to ultimately create and help all these women, minorities, writing to me from all around the world. And so as I came up with the idea, I realized I didn't have though millions of dollars to hire a team of engineers, but maybe it was the one final thing I could learn to code that could maybe help me to create this and build this myself. So I realized that maybe what I could do is teach myself how to code Ruby on Rails at night. And maybe I could build this myself, this little idea out. So every single day I'd work for the president of CBS, vice mayor of Beijing, Gerard Butler, Patricia Arquette, talent, all this Hollywood talent at night. And it all worked out with all the different time zones being different. And then at 3 a.m., generally everything would be quieter. And then all of a sudden I would clear the kitchen table and it would become my favorite time of the night. I would pull up my Ruby on Rails tutorial PDF by Michael Hartle that I found online thanks to my brother pointing it out uh, as he was a coder himself and as an incredible coder himself. And ultimately I started teaching myself how to code. And that first chapter was so difficult. I could not get through it. I almost gave up so many times within that first month. And so I ended up then, uh, striving, trying, being determined, almost gave up, but then finally at the end of the one month, got through it and finished. And then finally the fun began. 
chapters two through 10, I flew through within a week and a half. It was so fun. I loved it. Getting all my ideas out from my head and putting it into code was amazing. And so as a result, after essentially what was a month and a half in total time, mostly spent on trying to figure out what software to download, I built the first iteration, very, very ugly version of Mogul. And I then was so proud of it though, because I created it with my own two hands, no matter how ugly it was. And I ended up sending that to all the women, minorities writing to me letters, following me online. And we ended up as a result of sending them that link, we ended up launching to nearly a million plus people within the first week. And uh, that became therefore one of the fastest growing platforms ever for diverse talent. And today, Mogul has become the largest leading ecosystem for diverse talent in the world. And currently reaching millions of people all around the world. And ultimately now also providing talent solutions to over 480 Fortune 1000 clients to gain access to that talent through our software or services so as to then place diverse leaders within their organizations. And we again service over 480 of the Fortune 1000 and more, which is really exciting because therefore we are the organization that can most create an impact on diverse leadership in the world at this time. And now with all the dollars we earn, we partnered with the United Nations since 2017 and other international organizations worldwide to provide out free educational resources to women and minorities in need globally. So therefore have donated well over $10 million worth of free educational resources at this time since then. And uh, it's been wonderful to then have those women and minority leaders become a part of our ecosystem thereafter and create a circular model for global good in this way. And so that's where we are today. That's incredible. Thank you so much for doing this work. It's clear that you're going to continue to have even more successes in the future. And we're so grateful for that. But I also wanted to ask about failure, actually. It's something that's still really stigmatized in the Vietnamese community and beyond. How do you embrace and learn from failure? And can you tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from it? I fail every day, to be honest. And I actually celebrate that failure because I was so lucky to grow up with a father who was somewhat non-traditional in his approach to failure, as you just noted, while most of our society might stigmatize, I would say even beyond the Vietnamese community, the whole world largely stigmatizes failure. But I was very lucky to grow up with a father who was raised by my grandmother, obviously, who cherished failure. And so every single day, he'd encourage me to fail. Fail forward, he would always tell me as a little girl. So long as I was learning, I was succeeding. So I was someone who never saw anything as a failure, totally, to be honest although the rest of the world would identify it as such, I just saw it as me exploring and me learning and that was success. So whether that was in all my extracurricular activities as a child to even now at Mogul, trying something fast, rapidly iterating and then realizing that it's not the direction to go. So let's keep going where the world is taking us, where movement is taking us and that making me realize again that that instance could have been viewed by others externally as a failure, but for me, it was just learning and succeeding. So that happens every single day. And I really encourage anyone listening today to really remember that so long as you're learning, you're succeeding, failing forward is key. And um, it's something to be proud of. And some of the most successful entrepreneurs of our time regularly celebrate failure. For example, Sarah Blakely of Spanx 
her father too would go around the dinner table and ask his children every single day, what did you fail out today? And so it's sometimes that celebration of failure. If you're someone who does that naturally, you're probably meant to be an entrepreneur. Yes, absolutely agree. Now, after all the failures that you turn into lessons today, you're a global recognized business person. Is there something that you wish you would have known earlier, specifically in a business context? Can you share some advice? There's so much advice I wish to share. Of course, when you're first starting out the business, my advice is to stay resilient. You're going to hear so many no's along the way because as you build a business, especially you have to build so many different types of stakeholders within the business, advisors, investors, team members, users. Along the way, you're going to build so many stakeholders within your business that every single one is going to have to hear from you why they should buy into your company, support it in some way. And you're going to hear those no's from every single one of them. There's going to be a segment of that, of the people within that segment that says, yes, they believe it. They want to adopt it. They want to be one of the first ones to support you. There's going to be some that say, maybe, maybe not, not sure. And there's going to be some that say, this is a terrible idea, but along the way you have to Think about what the naysayers are saying, see if you can incorporate those learnings back in, but keep going, keep going because one day all those no's will turn ultimately into not right now's and they will turn into yeses. And I cannot tell you how many times along my now decade long plus journey, so many of the people that didn't necessarily participate alongside me in the early days came back around years later and now became a part of the team, became investors, became advisors, became customers. Those that had said no, even at the very beginning, went and said yes at the end. So just keep going because with all that determination and inspiration you're going to create along the way, everyone will go again from a no to a not right now to a yes. I love that. You seem to be the kind of person who pushes through no matter what. Now, I'm curious about the time when you were teaching yourself coding at night while having all these jobs, while responding to all these letters. How? How did you do it? Like, when did you sleep? At the time, I didn't sleep very much. Honestly, I saw a video yesterday of Gary Vaynerchuk, who's one of our investors in Mogul. And he, in that video, said 22 hours daily of grinding work. And I thought to myself, oh, I, I at least slept like three hours a day. <laughs> I didn't sleep just two like him. Um, but he and I probably had the same level of energy, at least I used to. And ultimately, around this time frame of like the first four to five years of Moga, I'd say, I was definitely sleeping about three to four hours a night. The first maybe year to two years, I was sleeping like three, two to three. So definitely he's not exaggerating, but it gets better every year, right? The first two, three years, like, two to three hours, then three to four. Now I sleep, you know, five to six to seven. So it, it has gone now to normal and it has eventually reached the end of the tunnel with the light. So I think uh, at that time though, when I was first starting out, I'm so grateful that I did it when I had the most possible energy in my twenties, because definitely it was you know, very, very grinding work. There was a lot of exciting work, but took all the day, took the entire day. And I did make some sacrifices along the way with regards to 
not family because my family found ways to stay integrated in my work. My brother joined me as a co-founder. My father and mother moved up to New York where I was so, so they could make sure that they could make me fa for lunch and ultimately be around me for the weekends. But, um, you know, personal relationships took a hit from a romantic level. And ultimately it's only now years later that that no longer has to be the case. But in the early days, some things do have to give. And for me, sleep and personal romantic relationships was the two areas that did. So yeah, along the way, you'll have to understand where to sacrifice early on. Uh, but so long as you keep working and keep going after your passion and keep staying inspired and motivated for the right reasons, then then you'll move past it. And one day again, you'll come to the light of, and at the end of the tunnel. Gosh, I mean, I definitely need more sleep than what you did back in the day. I don't know how you do it. But on the other hand, I guess maybe I should lie in a little less because I still have the energy, I guess. But yeah, um, I also wanted to ask about how you overcame being an introvert, actually, and needing to build all of those relationships for the work that you do. How did you become the leader that you are today? Absolutely. You know, those early anecdotes in which I was talking about my time at Yale and Harvard and having to push myself and raise my hand and sell door to door. Those were crucial early anecdotes to provide because it showed you how in everyday instances, I was already forcing myself because once it becomes the situation, once the situation becomes your startup, it's going to be 10 times more extreme. You know, every single day you're going to be pushing yourself and you're going to be pushing yourself in front of press in front of audiences, in front of customers, in front of stakeholders, investors, advisors, board members, team members. You're enough to push yourself so many times throughout the day to deliver, to impress in every single moment, to be authentic, to be giving, to be caring, to be performing, delivering. Every single facet of you has to be at 100% that it is crucial to remember all the little times that you could have done the same And so that when it becomes extreme in this way, you can be doing so at all times, 360. And so that's why I wanted to share those early anecdotes early on. So now going back to the time of Mogul, what happened was that this internal trait started even further building upon itself since day one. Basically, I remember day one, what happened was around This time, as I shared, we launched a million people and we had so much traction. We had so much traction that people were contacting us from New York, from Silicon Valley, including one of the number one accelerators in the world. They had heard about our traction and they said that they'd heard about us. Their deadline for applications is tomorrow. We should consider applying. And we were like, wow, the number one accelerator in the world just contacted us to apply. Perhaps we should, because that was a really good sign maybe we might make it. So we rushed and we got the first round interview, went great, second round, third round, fourth round, final round. But I went into the final round room, unfortunately, and discovered the entire room was much like the makeup of Harvard Business School, entirely Caucasian male, except for myself. And all of a sudden, what should have been ideally a really great interview, final round, because we were essentially down to the final startups they were selecting, unfortunately went sideways 
And all of a sudden they really couldn't understand the need behind this. Why was this needed by the world? Even though there were a million people plus using it and none of the other startups didn't consider it even had that level of traction, I'm certain of it. Uh, nonetheless, of course, the conversation went sideways and then not understanding the perspectives of our users. And ultimately uh, my brother and I left the room, I remember, and we were like, I don't think I got it. We don't think we got it. And my brother was like, well, maybe it was reverse psychology. Maybe we got it. <laughs> and then the next day we got a phone call from them and sure enough, we didn't get it. So what happened was as a result, I said, you know what, but it doesn't matter. My brother, I said, At the end of the day, you know, what were they going to provide us anyways, but the right introductions to the right investors and mentors and advisors. But you know what, that actually is totally okay because we will introduce ourselves to the right investors and mentors and advisors. We will do it ourselves. We will put a fire under ourselves for this next year. So what happened was as a result, it was that day that I started to email out to all these incredible people that I knew within our industry or beyond. And I had also asked some friends to do the same as well. And my friend Alex did the same. Um, a wonderful friend that I had been an advisor to over the years and had always given and given to. The moment that I started Mogul, he came back and turned back around that goodwill. So that was really wonderful. A wonderful moment to see that actually that happened a couple of times. All these people had helped along the way in learning and you know these different facets of a company when I started Mogul came back around and helped me. So that was wonderful karma in the end. What happened therefore was Alex introduced me to one of his investors and that was the founder of Match.com. And the founder of Match immediately replied and said, yes, let's get on a call tomorrow. And I said, great, except I had never pitched anyone before and I didn't have a deck together. <laughs> so the first day literally put together what I hoped was going to be an impressive deck, but made so many mistakes. I had a deck with tons of overwhelming data, which you don't want to do in a pitch. You want it to be a compelling story. You want each slide to be a compelling story. You want that slide. If any slide in your deck doesn't hit a home run, you should cut it because any, any slide that remains within your deck, if that was the only slide that someone saw, that in itself should be what causes them to buy in. It should be such a home run that it would cause them to want to be a part of your startup from that slide alone. That I didn't know. So I put all sorts of overwhelming data in the deck. I had a black background, which was terrible as well because then someone doesn't want to print out the deck and look at it because they don't want to waste their toner or their ink. So made all sorts of little amateur mistakes like that. But I had my passion and I had my story of why I wanted to create this. And ultimately as a result, told the founder of match.com all of this. And even though I made all these mistakes, he said to himself and out loud to me, you know, at, at the end of the day, it reminds him of his own story. When he launched, he also had a million people and he didn't have a million dollars. He didn't have advisors. You know, he didn't have a lot of money. Therefore, he lost those people. So my story and the pain points that I was about to experience resonated with him. And he said, you know what? I'll become your first advisor and investor. And so I was like, that's amazing. Thank you. And he said, yeah, send me the paperwork. And I said, what paperwork? And so he said, the next time you talk to someone like me, make sure you have downloaded the right documents from ycombinator.com for your investment agreement, your safe, uh, simple agreement for future equity. So then I did that. And then he became our first advisor and investor. And so then that became the first of what 
became multiple thereafter conversations and pitches and thereafter a number of wonderful investors joining Mogul too, uh, from Gary Vaynerchuk to Hearst Corporation to SoftBank. We became one of the first female-led companies invested in by SoftBank, one of the world's largest investors, and also welcomed on the founders of LinkedIn Learning to Comcast, heads of NPR, Goldman, et cetera, and more. So wonderful founders, institutional VC investors, and strategic investors invested in Mogul. But it all took that, again, first push, first practice to get there. And I have so many stories like that, you know, with accelerators, as I'd mentioned, failing at that conversation, but succeeding thereafter with the founder of Match.com. Same things with customers, with selling. So many stories around how to sell a product successfully, starting out with the first customers, getting no's or getting yeses, but only if you lower your price point to such an insignificant level, and then ultimately driving it up from there in value. Um, so many stories of entrepreneurship in that way, but that's the fun of the journey. Wow. I genuinely enjoy listening to all your stories of overcoming challenges, Tiffany. What would you say is your current biggest challenge that you face today? My current biggest challenge with Mogul and where I am at professionally, personally, is that there are so many possibilities ahead that there were a few years in which Mogul could have gone in any sorts of direction. It could have continued as a community and we could have ultimately grown the organization as more of a media organization. But then there was an industry fallout in the media space, as you all know, I'm sure, as observers of uh, tech and media. And ultimately we were very fortunate to have not decided to grow the mogul organization in that realm. We had instead preferred to grow it in where we believed it would have more sustainability which was SaaS, software, technology, true technology infrastructure. So whereas earlier on in Mogul's lifetime, again, it had grown as a organic community, we then had to re-fortify ourselves as a technology software company. And ultimately from there, it continued to uh, flourish to where it is today. And, um, and so, Every step along the way, every few years, an entrepreneur will face a fork in the road. You know, where more can they grow? Where else can they lead the organization? And so for Mogul, where we are today is we've scaled, you know, to a mass level with regards to the components that I've just shared. But what's ahead is potentially another fork in the road. We could continue to, you know, scale in the same areas globally, or we can grow new verticals. And this decision, this fork in the road actually was the subject of the Harvard Business School case study about Mogul, in which now Mogul had grown to such successes globally that um, the students were to discuss where else next they believe that we should go. Um, but that answer is TBD at this time. That said, there's a number of really exciting announcements that we'll be making in 2021 and 2022. Um, exciting that I can even just tell you that because I remember the days when we used to just think about the next day or the next week or the next month and now we're talking about telling you things for the next year to two years so it really really cool sometimes had to reflect on that and feel fortunate that that's the case but yeah in 2021 you'll see a lot of exciting moves from Mogul um, one of which does include an initiative related to venture capital um, I guess is the easiest way to put that and also 
um, an announcement on our social impact to date and the dollars donated to date as well. So lots of exciting things uh, to come, but again, feel fortunate that we're even getting a chance to say that. Very exciting. I really can't wait to see all of the new things that you guys announced in 2021. So yeah, I think the last section of our episode, we would probably like to focus a little bit more on your relationship with Vietnam. You mentioned earlier that you always keep Vietnam in your heart when you think of your grandmother. But when was the first time that you actually went there and how frequently do you go to Vietnam? The last time I went there was 2011. The first time, I'm sorry, that I went there was 2011. The last time I went there was, I think, about three years ago. And it was the first time, the last time were incredible experiences. The top three, top two of the top three experiences I've ever had in my life. First time I went with actually a number of my classmates from Harvard Business School. And we explored a number of different cities, Hanoi, Kanto, uh, and of course, Ho Chi Minh City. And it was amazing, just amazing to see Vietnam for the first time and to feel that connection back. And uh, of course, eat the incredible food, shop, explore, see the sights, but just to truly be amongst the people and, um, and just feel at home. That was really, really amazing. And of course, to show my classmates, you know, around as well, I'll never forget it and recorded a video of it. And I watch that video quite often, actually, just because it makes me so happy that memory of seeing the country for the first time. And then in 2017, went back with my family and um, it was amazing as well. Just again, seeing it now alongside my parents and my siblings for their first times. It was really incredible. We had such an amazing trip, went up and down the entire country. So made stops in over a dozen cities at least. And uh, it was just the most amazing, magical experience of my life. Um, just being all together and again, connected back to our home country. So really incredible time. What does being Vietnamese mean to you? Being Vietnamese means being myself. Um, I'm Vietnamese through and through and it, you know, really honored to represent the culture, the people globally, as you know, I've grown professionally, personally, in our space in this world, uh, within technology, within our space of diversity and inclusion and gender equity. I've been really proud to represent the country, our people, and, and um, to hopefully continue that success so I can continue to make us all proud. So, you know, being Vietnamese is being myself. Tiffany, I really love how strong your sense of Vietnamese identity is, despite only having been there for the first time in 2011. What would you say communities like overseas Vietnamese should be doing to foster more entrepreneurship and to also help more women become entrepreneurs as well? I think we can all help each other become connected, stay connected to one another, stay connected into the entrepreneurship community and encouraging one another, women and men, both to participate um, because sometimes I've seen friends of all ethnicities not be able to take that leap, take that jump until one of their peers encourages them, until they see so many around them doing the same that why not them? And so I think the best we can do as overseas Vietnamese to encourage more entrepreneurship, to encourage more equity within the entrepreneurship space is to continue to encourage all each other 
to continue to be successful within our own realms as entrepreneurs, if you are an entrepreneur already, and to encourage others to join in as well. And to offer the help and the mentorship when it's asked of, to participate in this wonderful podcast and show and, you know, and, and other initiatives like this that can demonstrate examples to others, role models, um, because certainly you can't be what you can't see. And, and this show is going to do incredible things for our community in this way to represent the examples and to propagate their stories so that others can be encouraged to join in. So I think um, what you are doing is amazing, an amazing example of what everyone else should do. And I'll hopefully do my part too by encouraging others and continuing to share my story as well so that others will join in too. Very well said. I couldn't agree more. And thank you again for being here to share your story. All right, so one last question we always like to ask our guests is what is your favorite Vietnamese food? What is my favorite Vietnamese food? There is too many to count, um, but ultimately I make incredible pate chaud. Apparently my family thinks they've never tasted better pate chaud than mine. So it's definitely my specialty and I look forward to making it one day. I may even make a business out of it, to be honest. <laughs> pate chaud. Um, otherwise love, of course, pho and boom ball and boom rio. Um, when I was growing up in France, we had a place not only in Paris, but in Normandy, we would go to in the summer. And at Normandy Beach, I one day went in at six years old and went underwater. And unfortunately, because of this, almost drowned that day until my father happened to see my head bobbing up above the water, trying to call for help. So he came and rescued me. And then when we went up, up to the shore, back to the place, that we had at Normandy Beach. My mother had been cooking this incredible pot of bumriel and it brought me back to life. And thereafter, at that moment, I fell in love with bumriel so much that I would eat it every single week. I would ask for it all of the time as a child. And even to this day, for my birthday, you know, people joked, you know, what do you give to someone who has everything already? Well, for myself, I never ask for anything anymore for my birthday. I only ask for food, for Vietnamese food. And so my whole family would fly in and just cook, cook for me for my birthday. That's all I ask for. And everyone always cooks me boom real. So <laughs> I definitely have a love affair with Vietnamese food and especially from pate chaud to boom real. Well, I'm getting hungry now. So let's end it with this, Tiffany. Your stories have been very inspirational. Your advice very valuable. I'm glad we could welcome you on our show today. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was such a delightful time and, and so excited for all that you have created and, and cannot wait to continue to contribute as well. And for anyone else who's out there and hoping to connect, feel free to find me on any social media platform, whether it's on Logo itself or LinkedIn or Instagram and Facebook, etc. Excited to connect and to hear from you all and to help and mentor and support. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening. If you found this interesting, share our podcast with your friends. To get in touch with our team or to join the Overseas Vietnamese community, visit overseasvietnamese.com. We run a vibrant online community for Vietnamese people from all over the world, where we chat about a wide range of topics, from career growth and personal development to Vietnamese culture and economy, and much, much more. We are a family looking out for each other and growing together. See you there and in the next episode.